For decades, statisticians, social scientists, psychologists, and even Nobel Prize-winning economists have devoted extensive time studying whether or not streaks exist. Can someone, from gamblers to stock analysts to three-point shooters and others, actually have what's called a hot hand? Is it science or myth? Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and frankly, I'm psyched about today's guest. It's best-selling author and popular columnist, Ben Cohen. My son, the world's biggest basketball fan and medical school student, read his book recently and couldn't stop talking about it. It's called The Hot Hand. Then he passed it on to me. I had the same response, and thankfully, Ben agreed to join us. And you are going to be stunned by some of the things you're about to learn. Are you thinking about a career as a health and wellness coach? Or maybe you're an athletic coach, counselor, physical therapist, or other professional looking to further build your toolbox and enhance your career. We've now finalized the 2022 schedule of MBHWC approved certification trainings, continued education, and our annual Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium. You can find all the details on the website, catalystcoachinginstitute.com. And as always, if you have any questions, if you want to set up a call and talk this through, how it relates to your career, et cetera, et cetera, reach out to us. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. We'll get a time set up. Now, it's time to be a catalyst with best-selling author Ben Cohen on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. All right, well, Ben Cohen, uh, my son introduced me to your amazing book that I'm holding in my hand called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. You did such a good job with this. Why don't we start off by telling us what in the heck is the hot hand and why does it matter? It's a great question uh, to which there is really no great answer, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so there's no like universal definition of the hot hand, but I like to think of it as when success leads to more success. So mm. in basketball, and the hot hand has always been studied primarily through basketball, um, it is when you make one shot and then another shot and then another shot and you feel more likely to make your next shot, right? You feel like you are in the zone, you are on fire. Uh, but, you know, it's not just about basketball. This is really about human behavior and how we make decisions and judgments, which is the reason why some of the smartest people on the planet have spent a whole lot of time trying to get to the bottom of the truth about the hot hand and whether or not it exists. And if it does, how we can take advantage of it to, to change our careers and, and really alter our lives. So as you dug into this and, and you took it in a number of different directions, we'll talk through some of those. What caught you by surprise? What, 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 what as you were peeling layers back, you went, wait, what, what now? Well, a lot of it. I mean, you know, probably the, the, the first big surprise, um, which I think would be surprising to a lot of people who both know and don't know anything about the hot hand, is that the hot hand is not supposed to exist. Right. Um, like the, the reason why uh, the, the, all of this started with um, the publication of this classic paper in the canon of behavioral economics in the 1980s that um, basically said there is no such thing as the hot hand. Right. It is a cognitive illusion. It's just a figment of our imagination. And like one of the reasons that paper was um, was such a success and caused such a ruckus is um, because it violated something we all thought to be true. And we all thought it to be true because we've all felt the hot hand or seen the hot hand for ourselves. I have, I'm sure you have in, in different parts of life. And when I, when, when the, the, the one time I had the hot hand on a basketball court a very long time ago in a gym that like, you know, nobody else was in and, and nobody else, but I mean, 
whatever. Like it, it, it just, it, it felt like I was floating on air and, you know, no one would be able to tell me for the rest of my life that what I was feeling in that moment um, was not actually real. That, you know, it, I, I was not in some flow state or that, like I was, I was no more likely to make my next shot in that moment. And, um, you know, I, that to me was the first big surprise. And I think it was, um, it's the reason why this idea, um, has driven so many people crazy and like, and, and, um, appealed to so many people, I think over the last 35 years, because, you know, it, um, it is a really powerful, um, uh, concept and there is some, there, there was anyway, for, for a very long time, um, pretty good proof that like it wasn't quite real. And so to me, that was the first big surprise. And I think it, it, it put me on this journey where there were sort of surprises and twists and delights around every corner. So I'm just thinking I've your last several columns. I've just it's so well, so, so good. If anybody's not following Ben and seeing his columns in the wall, you got, like follow him now, like stop the interview, go to Twitter, follow him, pull his stuff. Because I think you've had a hot hand lately. Do you see it in your writing? Let's just, let's just take that path for a second. Um, not lately, but I wish I felt it more, but, um, there, there have been times, um, like very isolated, uh, cases and they don't last for very long, but I, you know, I have felt hot in my own job and, you know, there are reasons why I remember those experiences so fondly because it felt like every day I was waking up and I was ahead of the story and people were calling me back and the words were just flowing onto the page. And, um, the, the one thing I sort of learned about the hot hand is that, um, it's a feeling that cannot last forever. And so we kind of bottle it for as long as we can. And so that's, that's in sports, right? It's in business, it's in everything we do. And it's especially in, um, in, in your own job, in my own job. And so I think everything, um, I, I try to do is to, to, um, create conditions that would make the hot hand possible, but, um, you never quite know when it's going to strike and all you can kind of do is take advantage when it does. Now you've mentioned the word flow a couple of times. She sent me high. The, the gentleman who came up with that term and the research behind it just passed away recently. Uh, you've written about Steph and she sent me high's work on flow and that kind of stuff. Can you kind of tie those together for us and how one affects the other and what Steph has done related to that? And, and by the way, when I say Steph for the non-basketball fans out there, Steph Curry, the greatest shooter we've ever seen on the planet. So there's his introduction. Uh, but can you tie those together for us a little bit? Yeah. Like when you hear the two of them describe what the flow state is, um, they basically use the exact same language. I mean, one is mm. one is um, a psychologist and the other is a professional basketball player, but they're essentially talking about the same thing. And, you know, I think um, uh, it, it's as if like, you know, the entire world ceases to exist around you. And the thing about um, Csikszentmihalyi's work that um, I find so interesting in the context, because, because the hot hands I think, and, and like a flow state are, are slightly different, but what I find so interesting about it is that, um, what he showed is that it's a deeply pleasurable experience, mm. right? And that is one of the reasons we were we have such clear and vivid recollections of the times we are hot and the times we see other people get hot because there's something that it, there's something about it that makes us happy. And like I was watching, um, you know, Steph Curry had like another sublime game last night, yeah. and you know, there's just there's there's no better show in sports than him. There's no more electrifying talent in sports than him. And you know, I there's, there's just no one else in sports who like 
makes me so ecstatic to watch him when he gets hot than Steph Curry. And um, I, I think there's a bit of a mystery to why that is. I would love to know more about that, but um, there's just something so delightful about watching him play basketball, especially on nights when he can't seem to miss. And, mm-hmm. you know, his great weapon as a basketball player, well, he has two. One is, as you said, he's the greatest shooter in the history of the world. Um, but two is that he, like, he has really learned how to weaponize playing with joy is what him and um, his coach Steve Kerr mm-hmm. call it. And, you know, lots of players, um, they get mad. Um, that's how they sort of, um, uh, like, access um, their inner competitor. And he is, like, maniacally competitive in his own way. But there's never been a happier basketball player than him or someone who has been so good at basketball because he is able to um, leverage, like, you know, joy as a force on the basketball court. And, you know, I, I can't do that as a journalist. Like it's, it's not like I like, you know, I'm, I'm popping open my laptop and I'm like pleased and like joyful to be typing words, but <laughs> there is something like when you are in a flow state, like you do sort of want to get back to the, the blank word document because there's something deeply fulfilling about it. And so that's like, you know, in, in the one or two times where I felt hot at work, I mean, that's the closest I will ever feel to feeling like Steph Curry, I think. So let's chase that rabbit trail a little bit. Was there any connect besides Steph? Was there any connection between joy and the hot hand or the streak as you were doing the research? Um, you know, that, that's a good question. I, I, um, I don't think so that much just in the way that like we experience it. I don't think it's a causal relationship. I think that it's more of an effect of having the hot hands. And so, um, you know, that idea that, um, it, it does make us happy. You know, I think there's an argument, I, I don't really pursue it in the book, but I, I do think there's an argument where I've thought about it, that, um, being happy does create our best work. And what I, what I found when I was doing research, um, for this book and, and reading, you know, the hundreds of scholarly right. works that have been published about the hot hand over time is that, you know, we have hot hand periods in our careers. There's there's um, an interesting um, uh, scholar at Northwestern named Dashin Wang who has um, studied this pretty comprehensively at this point. And you know, one of um, his first big studies into the hot hand periods of careers, he looked at artists, scientists, and um, movie directors, and he looked at their IMDb ratings and auction prices and uh, Google Scholar citations. And what he found was that there was a period in, in almost um, all of these people's careers when their work was elevated, but they were the best versions of themselves. And he refers to this as the hot hand periods of their careers. And, you know, the hot, what you do in your hot hand period um, sort of defines your career. It's how you remember your work and it's how other people remember you. So I think in that way, being happy makes for a really powerful force because um, the hot hand is this phenomenon that, um, that shapes our own perceptions and it also shapes the way that the world sees us. And like, if, uh, uh, you know, I, I've written probably thousands of stories for the Wall Street Journal at this point, but those stories that I've written when I felt hot, I can like, I can remember very clearly like what I was doing and, and where I was and the types of people I was talking to the same way. I remember that junior varsity basketball game from a very long time ago. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure why it's one of like, even after thinking about the hot hand for all these years, I haven't quite figured it out. All I do know is that it exists. And from talking to a whole bunch of people about their own experiences, I don't think it's really uncommon that I feel this way either. 
By the way, I thought that was a great way to start your book. You, you Right out of the gate, I'm like right there on the court with you going, oh my gosh, yeah, I remember those days. Um, so the, the recent article you wrote- Can I ask about you? What, what's the hottest you felt? I can remember a game, and I was not a great basketball player, but uh, I can remember a game similar to your story, and that's probably why it resonated, where I, I don't remember, I scored 23, 25 points, whatever, in high school, and it was just like everything would go it's exactly what you described. It just happened. And then career-wise, yeah, there's been some times where it didn't really make sense, where things were working out, not because of logic, it just seemed like, and flow's the wrong word because it, it was different than technically what flow is, but yeah, it, it happens. So when you're talking about people experiencing that in a small subset of their research studies, their career, their athletic pursuits, that makes sense. I, I, I see that. I, I haven't studied like you have, but I definitely see that on a, a, a N of one, if you will. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And, uh, and that's interesting. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because like, there is something universal about it. You're not describing something obscure or something that people are not familiar with themselves. Like that familiarity is like one of the reasons why it has been such a contentious topic in yeah. social psychology and statistics and economics for such a long time. So I added this question after I read your column yesterday or day before, when you were talking about Steph looking to get the swish within the swish, the, the study that he built off of the, technology he used to give himself feedback on whether he was truly his shot was in the right in the center within two, three inches of it or more in the six, seven, eight inches is the, is the hot hand, at least in this example, simply because he prepares, obviously he's gifted, but is he hot because doggone it, he's doing the work that others aren't doing. Is that why people get, is that the academic who gets published you know, 10 times in, in one year, is that the entrepreneur who, you know, strikes it, you know, a couple times over a decade? Is it just because they're preparing more? They're doing the work that others aren't, or is it, is it different than that? Well, I think, I think that work is one of the prerequisites, but it's not the only one or else, um, you know, there are lots of other people who might claim to be someone like Steph Curry. Right. I think, you know, I, in the book, I write about um, two of, two of the favorite hot streaks that I write about in the book. One was um, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And I would have loved to ask him about the time he got hot, but obviously I couldn't. So I asked (laughs) Steph Curry instead about the time that he got hot. And what I really wanted to know um, is the question that I feel like most people um, will ask when they think about the hot hand, which is, is there anything I can do to put myself in the state of mind yes. that I can get hot, right? And so to me, the hot hand is this collision of um, talent and luck and circumstance. So, you know, Steph Curry obviously has the talent and, you know, there are lots of people who can get lucky, but I think the circumstance um, is really important. And, um, you know, there are lots of people who might never have the circumstance or the context to be able to leverage their hotness or use it to elevate their own careers. But Steph Curry did. And, you know, the one, the hottest game that he's ever had in his life, or, you know, the hottest game until recently um, was this game that uh, the Golden State Warriors played in Madison, Madison Square Garden in New York in 2013. And there was really nothing to suggest that it would be a game that changed um, the life of Steph Curry or the fate of the Golden State Warriors or, the future of the entire NBA and basketball around the world. In fact, if you had asked Steph when the ball was being tipped that night, are you going to play well? 
tonight, let alone have the greatest game of your life, he might have looked at you like you had six heads because <laughs> basically everything you know that could have happened to Steph Curry that day, anything that could have gone wrong did. So the night before, the Warriors um, had, had played a game in Indiana um, that had been spoiled by a fight, a brawl on the court. And Steph was sort of involved. In fact, if you go back to the tape, he kind of started it. Um, but uh, one of the problems... Uh, was that Steph Curry was too small to do any real damage in the fight <laughs> with NBA. So, you know, for, for, for his entire life, his size had been a great disadvantage of his on the basketball court. But for that one night, it proved to be this really unlikely edge that he had. Because when the NBA reviewed footage of that fight, um, they decided not to suspend Steph Curry the way they did for other players involved in the brawl. They they uh, they only fined him $35,000. And I think there's a case to be made that never has anyone been so fortunate to lose so much money because, you know, when the Golden State Warriors got to the Garden that night, they were down a few players. They had played the night before. And they basically decided the only way they might possibly win that night was to unleash Steph Curry and to let him do things that nobody in the history of basketball had ever done before. And the way they got there was, was sort of strange. I mean, I, you know, I write in the book about uh, Steph Curry. Usually there, there are three buses that leave the Golden State Warriors hotel for every arena. This, this is pretty common in the NBA. They kind of stagger um, their entrances so they can warm up at different times. And Steph was always on the second bus. And for that game, for, for reasons he doesn't even remember to this day, he missed the second bus, which he never, ever does. And he has to take the third bus to the arena instead. And what happens when the third bus pulls out of the team hotel? It gets pulled over by New York City cops on the way to Madison Square Garden. So now he is late. He is rushed. He is $35,000 poorer than uh, when he went to bed the night before. And he goes out and he has the single greatest shooting night in the history of the NBA. He scores 54 points, which until very, very recently was the most points he had ever scored in the game. He made 11 of his 13 three-pointers that night. Until uh, that point in time, there had never been an NBA player who had taken that many threes and made that many threes in the same game. This game was sort of the epiphany that Steph Curry realized um, that Steph Curry had and the Golden State Warriors um, needed to let him do things that nobody had ever done before in basketball. And the consequences of that night have been really profound. They have changed the way that basketball is played. They have changed the way basketball players are valued. It has won uh, three titles for the Golden State Warriors and counting, two MVPs for Steph Curry. I think there's an argument that he is the most influential player of his generation and easily the most likable one. And would, would, would some of this, most of this have happened without that one night that he got super hot? Maybe, probably, but... Um, I think if you were to ask him, which I have, like that night was the genesis. And, you know, the really curious thing about it is if you were to ask him, you know, um, if, if, if you were to ask him if he knows when he's going to get hot or how or why or where or anything about, you know, his performance, he would say he, he can't predict it. He doesn't know when he is going to be in the zone. All he can do is take advantage when he is. So, so much in there to unpack. We, we had uh, Coach George Carl on a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and he made the point that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there were multiple ways that one team could beat another. Different defensive scheme, different strategy, different cover. He said, now, if you can't hit your threes, 
you cannot win. You don't have to, you don't have to have the highest percentage. You don't have to have the, the most, you don't have to always win the three point contest, but if you're not shooting that well in the three points, you cannot win anymore. And you're, you're talking about this game. When did you say it was 2013? Yeah. So 2013, the, the three pointer was in place. If my memory serves since 79 or 80. So that's 30 years of, it's just there. And then all of a sudden the entire game changes. What's up with that? I mean, was it literally that game that opened everybody's eyes or. uh... Well, it's, it's, it's one of the great mysteries of modern basketball. And it is, um, I I would say of all the questions that I've tried to answer in my eight years writing about the NBA for the wall street journal, it is the one that I keep coming back to, which is what took so long, right? The fact that the three-pointer is worth more than the two-pointer is in the name of the shot, right? You would think that (laughs) that teams and players would be lining up to take this shot that is worth 50% more than it is a few inches closer to the basket, right? But but they didn't. And even at the time that Steph had that breakout game, um, NBA teams acted as if they had found the optimal ratio of three pointers for, for about five seasons. They essentially took the same number of three pointers per game from, from 1979 to 19, 1979, 1980, the first year that the three point line was dropped on the court um, until, you know, 2012, the percent of shots on the NBA in an NBA game that were three pointers rose from about 3% to about 22%. And then it stuck at 22% for five years. Mm. And then this game happens and teams um, build their rosters around the ability to shoot three pointers as um, there's this wave of um, analytically mind executives building teams with access to data that, you know, never existed before. Um, They, they, all these um, really smart teams and successful teams realized, you know, suddenly we should be taking advantage of this great inefficiency hiding in plain sight. And now you have players flooding into the league who have been shooting three pointers for their entire lives. Right. And so if you think about like, you know, what the players in 1980 must've been thinking, they didn't grow up with a three point line. So if, if you're shooting from far away, that's just a bad shot for them. Like it's, it's, it's inefficient. It is going in at a lesser rate and it is worth the same number of points as a shot two inches from the basket. But suddenly all that changes and you almost needed a generation um, of players that, you know, include Steph Curry um, to, to know how to take advantage. And now we have this generation that is coming into the NBA that watched Steph Curry mm. as a kid and mm. think, well, I should be taking three pointers. And so from, you know, the, the, the rate of three pointers in the NBA, even a decade ago was about 22%, 22% of shots were threes. It's 40% now. Wow. So it's, it's changed dramatically. Wow. Wow. All right. So I, I'm, I'm sure I've got part of my audience sitting out there going, okay, is this whole thing about basketball? Let's shift it a little bit. You've touched on some other areas that it plays a role. You mentioned Shakespeare. Um, Where where else did you see the hot hand playing a role in some way? Well, I think it sort of touches everything, which is part of the reason why um, I wanted to uh, write about it. I, you know, Shakespeare is one, the princess bride is another. I mean, you know, I sort of took that example of, movie making that was in um, one of the studies about the hot hand that I wrote about. And I applied it to um, the movie, The Princess Bride and, you know, Rob Reiner's um, hot hand as a director in 
the 1980s because it was it was so fascinating to me. I, you know, I, I didn't really know much about the making of The Princess Bride until writing this book. And, you know, The Princess Bride was a movie that nobody wanted Rob <laughs> Reiner to make. Right. Which seems which seems like extraordinary now because it's one of probably like one of the more beloved movies made in the last half century. But um, for a very long time, it had been the great white whale of Hollywood. In fact, you know, lots of people had tried to make it before um, Rob Reiner. Robert Redford tried to make it. Norman Jewison, Francois Truffaut tried to make it. And all of them ran into dead ends. And the path that Rob Reiner took to making The Princess Bride was interesting because the first movie that he made was um, This is Spinal Tap, another cult classic, mm. right? And Spinal Tap was a movie that nobody wanted him to make, but um, but he kind of um, bootstrapped on his own and it came out. It didn't really make much money at the time, but it got pretty good reviews and that allowed him to make another movie. And the next two movies he makes are Stand By Me and The Sure Thing, which also get good reviews, start to make a whole lot more money. And what happens next is that, um, you know, he has the leverage and the capital to make projects that he wants to make, regardless of whether anyone else in the world wants him to make. Um, and, you know, in, in basketball, that is the hot hand, right? You make three shots in a row and you kind of have creative license to take a fourth shot. And like, you feel more likely that that shot is going to succeed. And so, you know, Rob Reiner has this conversation with Hollywood executive around this time where she says, you know, we've seen your work, we've seen your movies, we're following the box office receipts and the reviews. Um, essentially, you have the hot hand right now. We want to be in business with you. Um, what movie is it that you want to make next? And he says, well, I appreciate that, but the movie I want to make, you're not going to want to make. And she says, no, really, tell us what the movie is. And he says, no, really, you're not going to want to make this movie. <laughs> finally, she says, just name the movie. What is the movie you want to make? And he says, the movie I want to make is The Princess Bride. And she pauses and then says, well, anything but The Princess Bride. <laughs> and that was the level of resistance that anyone in Hollywood making The Princess Bride, which again, wow. is sort of like the three-point line in that it makes no sense. Right. The Princess Bride was written by William Goldman. He was coming off of all the president's men and Bush casting and that kid. You would think that Hollywood executives would be asking, would be rifling through William Goldman's trash and looking for his grocery list and trying to make movies <laughs> out of that, right? Like anything that guy touched was gold. And yet for some reason that like, you know, I still don't really understand to this day, maybe because it kind of defied genre, which is one of the reasons it became so popular, ironically, nobody could make The Princess Bride. And this was sort of like Rob Reiner's heat check. Steph Curry pulls up from 35 feet when he is hot and, you know, no one can yell at him. Right. Rob Reiner decided to use his hot hand to do something that nobody else wanted him to do. And it turned out to be an enormous success that um, changed his career in a lot of ways, changed his life. I mean, and it, and it started this next hot hand period of his career where he goes on to make When Harry Met Sally and Misery and A Few Good Men. And, you know, he rips off this run that, um, you know, in some ways is the result of um, The Princess Bride, which in many ways is the result of the hot hand he had earlier in his career. And so I think that series of events might be even more recognizable to people than Steph Curry getting hot on a basketball court, because, you know, not all of us are, um, are movie makers. In fact, you know, probably very few of us are, but there are times in our own lives where you could take advantage of hits at work and take a risk on something, take a chance or, you know, use it to do something that you might not have done otherwise. And you only have permission to do because you've had a few hits in a row. So let's stay on that path for a second. You, you mentioned Steph 
looks at you and says, Ben, I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen. I just, when it does, I run with it. And you just described the same thing with Rob Reiner. I, once it happened, I ran with it. You, you use that as a suggestion for us at work. If you're on a hot streak, that's the chance you maybe take that bigger risk. Are, are there other tips around the hot hand that either you've applied or you've seen other people utilizing or people have mentioned in the conversations that say, this is the, cause I love the application side of all these conversations. It's great. It's interesting. It's a fun story, but what do I do with it? So what do we do with this? Well, another great question. And to me, what's equally important is recognizing when you are in an environment where the hot hand does not exist. I think basketball um, is an example where it does. I mean, there's been, there's been like, you know, a, it, that's a controversial point um, among academics and in the, you know, behavioral economics and psychology community. But, um, you know, I think movie making is a whole lot like basketball. Um, but there are lots of, of, of environments where, you know, it's really not possible to get on a roll. And if you feel like you are on a roll, it is just the result of pure chance randomness. You have no control over what's going to happen. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really critical, um, to look around and, and try to figure out, am I in an environment where, um, the hot hand is possible and you can take advantage of it, or am I in an environment that actively punishes belief in the hot hand. And so, you know, there, there are sort of two in the book that I write about on that front. One is investing, right. And, and how the market works. And, you know, I think that again, is a contentious point. I think there are lots of people um, who believe they can beat the market. Right. And, and they are doing um, something that no other um, investor um, they're accessing returns that, that, that you can't find elsewhere. I think there are also a lot of people in the market who believe the market is fundamentally efficient. And the best thing you can do is put your money into an index fund and let the market go to work for you. The more interesting example that, um, that I found, um, is farming is, is agriculture, right? And, um, you know, in the book, I, I, I take a trip to the border of Minnesota and North Dakota to go, um, visit a fifth generation sugar beet farmer who I happen to know. And I, I, what I really wanted to know was, do you believe in the hot hand? And more important, do you behave as if you believe in the hot hand? And his answers are, are slightly different than Steph Curry's. He says, I do believe in the hot hand, um, but not in farming, because if I believe in it in farming, it can come back to burn me, essentially. And, you know, in farming, it's because you really have no control over what the yield or, um, you know, what crops are in any given year. You are You are really at the mercy of randomness and chance and the weather, because like you can, um, you can make all the right decisions. And if, if harvest happens to be, you know, in a really rainy two weeks of the year, it's not going to be a good year. And, you know, if, if, um, if, if you put all of your, um, resources into like, you know, soybeans in one, um, area of your, um, of if you put like all of your resources into one crop, because that crop happens to have had two or three good years in a row, and that crop happens to have a bad year that year, like you can bet the farm and lose everything. And it's not because of anything you did or didn't do. It's because you are fundamentally not really in control of your environment. You are essentially in a casino, not a basketball court. And so I think that like as important as taking advantage of the hot hand is, it's also really important to understand when taking advantage of the hot hand might be the very worst thing that you can do. That, that's I like that perspective because it, it 
it frames this whole thing for us of when, when, and when not. Um, I want to I want to jump into a few of your other columns because you again like the one on Max Deutsch, uh, November two thousand seventeen. I know you said you've written thousands, so I probably read this more recently than you. But um, you, you talk about being a grand experience. Just background for everybody: this guy does twelve stretch goals over twelve months. He hits all but one of them, and. And frankly, on the 12th one, which is what your article was about with chess, he did way better than anybody expected. But anyway, you quote, the, it's a grand experiment in human performance. What, what did you learn about human performance as you were following him, doing your research around that article that might be helpful to us or that you've seen be helpful for yourself? Yeah, it's almost about like, just challenging yourself all the time, right? And exposing yourself to new skills and figuring out how they might translate um, to the skills that you really care about. And so this was a kid, um, probably around 25 years old at the time, um, who challenged himself to a year of one month goals that might have seemed, um, you know, sort of insane to, to any other rational human being. Um, you know, he, he challenged himself. I, 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 I'm, um, I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy, but you know, like solve a New York times Saturday crossword, the hardest day of the week in like 10 minutes or less or something, or, you know, learn how to beatbox or do a backflip. I mean, things that, you know, some of them are mental challenges. Some of them are physical challenges, but you know, things that would take you out of your comfort zone and teach you how to learn, teach, like teach you how to teach yourself, um, different things and learn how to learn essentially. And, you know, I, I, I found Max because I was writing a story at the time about, um, people who listen to podcasts at accelerated speeds mm. like twice, two X and three X. I happen to be a two X listener myself. And, you know, you, you, you kind of like every, everyone kind of sounds like a chipmunk to you. And it was sort of a funny story. And <laughs> he, he challenged himself essentially, I think to, to learn how to listen to podcast, train his ear to listen to podcasts and audiobooks at 3x and 4x speed in part so he could listen to more books right and acquire more knowledge and o- over the course of talking to him for that story i found out about this project and the the, the final task of his year of learning um was to um to beat magnus carlson in a game of chess and um that just struck me as this really sort of delightful and quixotic goal and i had written a story about magnus carlson in the past his idea was to, to play computerized chess and, and beat um, a simulated version of Magnus Carlsen in a game. And I thought, well, you know, I wonder if he would be interested in playing the real human being, Magnus Carlsen. And um, I pitched this to Magnus's people. And Magnus Carlsen, like Steph Curry himself, is a bit of a showman and kind of understands the importance of marketing chess. And he thought it would be a fun little stunt and he was game for it. And so we all went to Hamburg, Germany for this showdown between Magnus Carlsen the greatest chess player in the history of the world and Max Deutsch, who essentially, you know, was not much better than a very novice player a month earlier. And we wanted to see like what you can do in a month. And chess is a little bit different from um, most other pursuits of human performance. It, it, it um, there's a reason why um, people have studied it and, you know, it, it it's closer to the 10,000 hours um, theory of success than like, being able to like range very widely and, 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 and pick up a bunch of, be a general at, like you have to really be a specialist in, in, in chess because of the way 
the mind works and we chunk information with our brains. But um, but but Max um, proved to be uh, very adept at learning. And I think the way he went about the challenge was was more interesting than what actually happened um, on the ground. He, he, he stuck around for, I think it was like 22 moves or something. And, you know, there were, there were moments where I was like, Oh my God, is this, is he going to win? Like, like me, like walking into a gym and challenging LeBron James to a game of one-on-one and being up like three, two or something and thinking like, Oh my God, like, I, I, I might win. Um, he, he did not win. I, I don't want to spoil the story, but I think it was the journey along the way that, that made for an interesting piece because the way he, he, set about like attacking this challenge over the course of a month, um, you know, was kind of more interesting than the seven minutes the match lasted or however long it did. Yeah, that was, I love that. Um, all right. Now I want you to put on your op-ed hat. So your columnist hat put over to the side. I just want to get your opinion on this. It's a Nuggets question. You wrote the article about Jokic uh, with the 41st pick of the draft. I think it was last April his stats this year are off the hook. Now I know we all love Steph and he's friendly and he's fun and he's little and he's kind of the underdog, even though he's been the greatest for his whole career. But even I, I saw a tweet of yours, I don't know, it was a week or so ago where you were talking about the Raptor score. And yet Jokic wasn't even mentioned by you, the guy that wrote an article about Jokic. So at what point do the statistics matter in the whole MVP thing? And at what point is it just a stage thing? Like, what what's going on? Because Jokic is not mentioned. Well, I mean, I think if you were, I think if you were to poll NBA reporters about um, who they would vote for for MVP today, um, I think you would be surprised that Jokic probably would win because his his numbers are so off the charts. I mean, this is a guy who won the MVP award last year, and he is just significantly clearly, better, like, indisputably more va- better and more valuable. Yeah. This year, I mean, the numbers that he's putting up, I mean, listen, it's a very small sample right now, right? Sure, sure, 12 sure. games, sure. the long season. Um, if he puts up these numbers for the rest of the season, it will be considered like the greatest statistical season of all time. Yeah. I mean, like the, the chasm between him and um, not only Steph Curry this year, but you know, Will Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron James, Michael Jordan's best seasons. I mean, the numbers, um, they're beyond compare. I mean, it, uh, again, very small sample, but I, I think they're, um, you know, I, the, the MVP is a strange award because it is, um, there, there's no real definition like the hot hand itself. You, you, you don't really know um, what valuable is supposed to mean, right. which is one of the reasons why um, it's the source of such great and ferocious debate for a few months every year. Um, but, but, but really it, it is a balance between um, statistics and aesthetics, right? I mean, you, you sort of need a narrative to win the MVP. And, um, you know, Steph kind of has that narrative right now. But if if the Nuggets keep winning and if Jokic maintains these stats over the course of the season, um, it's it's not really even going to be close. And I think, um, I think it's sort of what we saw last year. No one was really talking about Nikola Jokic as the MVP 12 games into last season. And yet by a certain point in last season, um, it was pretty obvious that Jokic was going to win and it was going to be an overwhelming vote. And, you know, I feel like the only surprise of Jokic winning last year was that it wasn't unanimous. I mean, Steph, <laughs> Steph Curry, you know, Steph Curry, his season in 2016, which is maybe the greatest individual season, you know, the sport has ever seen. He was the first and only unanimous MVP um, that the NBA has ever had. We're seeing more group think, I think, in terms of NBA voting now, because 
Um, you know, last year might have been an interesting exception if LeBron had stayed healthy or if Joel Embiid had stayed healthy. But by the end of the year, Jokic was kind of the only reasonable candidate for um, MVP, and he won an overwhelming um, majority of the vote. And so these these things take time. I I, I don't think there's anyone in the NBA who um, like you know overlooks Nikola Jokic at this point. It, if anything, it's just that his greatness is taken. You know, we, we take it for granted at this point. It's the way that. Like Giannis Antetokounmpo wasn't going to win MVP last year, even though he went on to, you know, go. He he won the championship in majestic fashion. It's because he had won the MVP two years in a row before that, and like to win the MVP three years in a row, like we're we're always looking for the new. We are like hardwired to search our minds. We like we want to be entertained and stimulated in different ways. Now, you know, it, there's nothing stopping Jokic from winning two in a row, and I would argue that like. He is a very, very different player than anyone who has ever won the MVP before him. I mean, he um, he was a, a second round draft pick. He was the lowest draft pick to ever win. Um, you don't see anyone who passes like him. You don't see anyone who looks like him doing the damage that he does. And so he is an extraordinary player in his own right. Um, and, you know, he's, as you know, like, <laughs> he's a lot of fun to watch. Like there might not be any, like Steph Curry is magnetic, but you watch Nikola Jokic and you're going to have a very good time watching basketball that night. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, everybody's like, dude, you got back into basketball. Step away, Brad. Um, a lot of our listeners are coaches. You wrote a great article about Ted Lasso uh, this last July. What are some of the key lessons for coaches from a guy who apparently has no idea what he's doing as a coach and yet, gets these amazing outlet, uh, these outcomes that everybody's wanting to mimic now in business and coaching and, and other places. What, what are some of the, the things that popped to the top for you from him? I, well, I feel like I have to clarify that that was after season one and it was before season two. So it was based on uh, only what we know about season one. Um, there was this strange phenomenon happening, as, as you pointed out, in sports and in business and in, um, you know, the management profession all over, which is that everyone was kind of wanting to be more like, Ted Lasso. And I think this is, this has started to happen over the last five, 10 years before Ted Lasso was even a show. We've seen coaches like Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll and Joe Madden um, really replace the authoritarian tyrant model type of coach, right? The ones that I grew up with anyway, or, and, and certainly like, you know, many generations before, um, you know, I think like empathy is obviously um, an important part of the Ted Lasso character um, kindness, but, but also like, keeping players accountable, um, but like, and, and having relationships with them that, you know, are not, um, so vertical, probably are a little bit more horizontal than we've normally seen in professional sports. Um, and, 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 and catering your relationship to every player. So like not having the same relationship with, uh, everyone beneath you, which I think is, um, which I think is important. And I think is, is, is sort of a reflection of this more, um, empathetic workplace culture that, um, that is being developed and is more popular now than it ever has been. People respond to different incentives and to different um, management structures and leadership models. And if you want to get the best out of every um, out of everyone around you, which is really the goal of a coach, it's to maximize the performance of your players. Well, not every player is going to be the same. So you have to treat them in different ways and um, and and appeal to um, different parts of them. And and that's hard. Like I, I don't think. Um, we can see um, a coach be an authority figure and just expect all of their players to respond to him anymore. I don't think that model works. I don't think it's, I I think we now know, like in order to have success, you don't have to be that way 
anymore. And so um, that to me is like one of the, the, the enduring lessons of Ted Lasso, the coach, right? Is that like, there are different, um, there are different models of, of coaching and maximizing performance and they might not match the mental model that we have from growing up. And you kind of have to adapt um, to the evolution of the world around you. And like in the same way that no one would have ever expected the show Ted Lasso to be a success. I don't think anyone would have expected Ted Lasso's um, leadership and management um, profile to be such a hit, but there are reasons why it has. Right. And I, I think those reasons were interesting, like that, that capturing that particular moment of time, I think in that story was interesting because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's just sort of counterintuitive to the way that we imagine professional sports coaches. Right. Right. All right, my friend, last question. Your your book, The Hot Hand, it was released in 2020. If you were going to add a chapter today, what would you include in that chapter? Um, okay, well, well, um, th- there are two things. The book came out March 10th, 2020. And you might remember the world shut down March 11th, 2020. So um, there's, there's a chapter in the book about um, the plague and how Shakespeare was able to take advantage of the plague um, and, and use it as like the basis of his own hot hand period. And suddenly we had like this real world case study that I would never have imagined when writing the book in 2018 and 2019. So clearly like the pandemic would be a chapter. If I were writing an afterward, I would want to know like how the pandemic has changed, um, creativity and productivity and like just what success means. Like, I, I, I think we're only now seeing like the first art come out of the pandemic and, you know, being trapped inside for a pretty long time is going to change the way that people do their jobs, obviously, but also like create things. And so that would be interesting. And, you know, I, I, the book sort of ends on this note of like, here's where we are in the current hot hand research. There um, are clearly going to be more papers and studies and thoughts about this over time. Um, And, you know, that was definitely right. There was a paper that came out um, not too long ago by that very same Dash and Wang who looked at the, um, the, 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 uh, the movie directors and the scientists and the directors. And he tried to pose, um, he tried to find an answer to that question that I asked Steph Curry, which is like, do you, how, how do you get hot essentially? Like, is there ever a time when you might be able to know when this is going to happen? And, um, his preliminary, his preliminary research about this shows that like the hot hand periods of the people that he looked at were um, preceded, preceded, not preceded, preceded by areas of um, uh, exploration and periods of experimentation. And so being able to like, you know, look at a whole bunch of different things, almost the way that Max Deutsch did um, and, and figure out what it is that you do best and incorporate um, lessons from um, whether it's different industries or different hobbies or um, just, just moving around a little bit that um, was the basis of a lot of hot hand periods. Now, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, um, I, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure how I feel about that yet because the research is so new, but it's interesting. Right. And it, it, it's an interesting theory. Um, and it's something that, um, I, I think is probably worth more exploration. And so, um, those two chapters, that that's what I would do. Um, if I could rewrite the book, for this moment. One is like what the pandemic did and, and how that might've changed our minds. And two is like these people who are, you know, to this day at this moment, trying to figure out this enduring existential question in some ways of how we get hot and like, are there ways 
um, uh, to maximize our chances of getting hot and feeling that glorious um, sensation of having the hot hand. Good stuff. My friend, thank you for doing this. Again, I know for the, for the folks that don't know, he just moved. He has a new baby. He's got a lot going on with his hot hand. So when that next book comes out, I'll be first on your list. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brad. It was a pleasure. Take care. You can find Ben's outstanding book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or if you're in my office, it's sitting on the bookshelf. Great stuff. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. Next week's episode is a hidden gem whose video version, we didn't even intend to do a video of this one, but we, we did it, it. We put it up there and it's gone on to be our number one video at the YouTube coaching channel, which is youtube.com slash coaching channel. The story of how that happened and much more on tap for next week. As always, feel free to reach out to us. Any questions about your current or future coaching career, Emails results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or you can tap into additional health, wellness, and performance coaching resources at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper, the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I will speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast or maybe over the YouTube coaching channel.